Welcome to the Informing Choices Minipod. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, transhumanism can be defined as the theory that science and technology can help human beings develop beyond what is physically and mentally possible at the present time. It asserts that with all the new technologies available, mankind will be able to solve every challenge it faces. But as we've seen in the past, in the hands of humans, waves of technological change can deliver both positive benefits and negative consequences to society. So what are the considerations and choices that as a society we need to make to ensure a sustainable and equitable future for humanity in an increasingly technologically enabled and technologically driven world? To talk about the future of active transhumanism, I'm delighted to welcome back futurist speaker, analyst, commentator and author David Wood to the podcast. David, welcome back. Remind us a little about your background and especially your interest in transhumanism. It's great to be here, Steve. My professional background includes 25 years in the relatively early days of the mobile computing and smartphone industries. I started as a software engineer but almost from the beginning, it was my responsibility in part to think about the future, because in that industry, it was clear that there were new software and hardware capabilities emerging. And we had to think, how should we plan ahead for the designs of the devices we were creating? What kind of applications might become possible? What would users of these mobile devices most value in their applications? And there's a whole host of other questions too, how people would use what came to become smartphones, what came to be known as smartphones. Now, in the course of my time in that industry, it was my responsibility as executive vice president for research to think more seriously about disruptive trends. And it came clear to me, in the words of a management consultant, Peter Drucker, that the most important questions about technology are actually human questions rather than technical questions. In other words, how technology would be used, how it would be developed, depends a great deal on human interactions, on human desires, on human imaginations, and on the stories we humans tell each other. I also saw that there was a whole bunch of new technologies coming, not just smartphones, but increasingly artificial intelligence in due course nanobots, technologies to reprogram not just our silicon devices, but also our own biology. Indeed, technologies that could enhance our brains, so-called cognitive technologies. And I realized that the thinking I was doing in terms of the future of silicon and software disruptions needed to be generalized into the future of humanity's relationships overall with technologies. And that's when I discovered the philosophy of transhumanism. And it's my view, as I try and cover in my writings, that actually the time is now for more people to understand transhumanism and to become part of some of the transhumanist projects to steer technology so that it truly benefits humans in the next stage of our time on this earth. So, you know, even already from what you've said there, there's some clear overlap in the, the definition from the Cambridge Dictionary that I outlaid as part of the introduction. But, but you've spoken about active transhumanism. So what is it? What do you mean by active transhumanism? Well, I have to acknowledge that many people are a bit afraid of the term transhumanism. Mm -hmm. It has a bit of a bad press. Some of my friends have even told me, David, stop using the word. It's toxic. It's got bad vibes. Actually, though, I want to defend it. 
but I do need to bring about some separation. Every movement has what can be called a shadow, a dark side. There are people around almost every community who give the community a bad name. And it's a little bit like that with transhumanism. Actually, there are people who are often described as being transhumanists who aren't particularly official parts of the community, but they give out various impressions. In particular, they give out the impression that the future is sort of already predetermined, that technology will determine the future. It's sometimes called technological determinism. And I see that as a very bad conclusion. I don't see technology as determining the outcome by any means. As I said earlier, it's very much up to the actions of humans as individuals and collectively. That's why I want to talk about active transhumanism, sometimes to separate out what I call the transhumanist shadow, which has various elements in it. This fatalistic view of technological determinism. Sometimes it's too easily given to hype. It's too excited by various uh, things that people talk about, but which aren't yet ready or which are misleading. There's too much sometimes in some transhumanist cycles, uh, re rejection of any government regulations, of any attempts to steer technology. The view in some quarters is that technologists and entrepreneurs are always the good guys and regulators and politicians are always the bad guys. And I see why people have that view, but it's my view that actually part of building a better future involves smart, lean, effective regulations and smart, lean, effective politicians as well. So that's part of the distinction I'm drawing between active transhumanism and the transhumanist shadow. Feels to me that what you're talking about there is the right kind of checks and balances in how society and humanity will actually enhance for the, 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 the greater good, the benefits that technologies represent. Exactly so. And in fact, if you look at what the transhumanist community acknowledges are its most central documents, it's not like the pillars of faith or anything like that, but there is a transhumanist declaration, which was first formulated in 1998. And in that declaration, there's about eight clauses, as I remember, and at least half of the clauses point out the risks involved in technologies. So it's by no means a naive document. It's a very well thought through document. It's easy enough for people to find it online. It talks about the fact that change could lead to very bad consequences as well as very good consequences. So that understanding has been there in transhumanism from the beginning. It emphasizes the need for structures for discussion forums, for social actions to ensure that we get the best from technology instead of the worst from technology. Yeah, interesting. So in, in your book, Vital Foresight, The Case for Active Transhumanism, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll talk more about the book later on, you, you talk about radical transformations and it, and it felt like that's kind of been an undercurrent in what we've been talking about so far. So, so what are these trans transformations that you see? So we can look at it from the point of view of the technologies that are emerging as part of what I think is can be accurately described as the fourth industrial revolution. We're still at the early stages of that. So we can look at it from a technological point of view and look at the improvements in nanotech, including quantum computing, including ever smaller sensors, including ever smaller robots, nanobots. We can look at the improvements also in infotech, 
which isn't just better computing, but it's also machine learning from big data and a due course leading up to variants of artificial intelligence, including artificial emotional intelligence and other things. There's also the improvements in biotech, uh, including genetic reprogramming, including stem cells, in including other manipulations at different parts of our biology. And there's cognitive technologies which allow us to understand more than ever before what's happening in the brain and to improve more than ever before what's happening in the brain. A bit like what people have tried throughout history via things like music or meditation or yoga or prayer or education of various sorts or inspiring literature or spending time in nature. All of that is intended in various ways to enhance our mental experience. Well, now we understand some of the science involved, we can recraft some of these techniques and we can also develop new ones, including smart helmets, including stimulation of the brain by various electromagnetic signals. So that's the technologies. But the real question is, well, what will it do to us humans? And this is where the radical transformations really kick in. We could look forward to super longevity, super intelligence, super well-being, super democracy, and what I also like to call super narrative. So some of these are fairly obvious what is meant, but let's just dig into them briefly. Super longevity means that uh, we would effectively stop aging. We would use some of these uh, biological rejuvenation therapies to undo in a periodic way all the damage that's happening. And this obviously would be a seismic change in a society that we no longer expect every generation to become feeble and old and then die and make room for new generations. Instead, we're looking at having people coexisting many generations together. Superintelligence means that we escape some of the other hazards of our biological heritage. We were in simpler times, we had various shortcuts in our reasoning. And there are some tribes that uh, don't have a word for four or five. They just count one, two, and many. Well, we humans generally have more words than that, but we're still subject to lots of cognitive biases or collective stupidity, it's sometimes called. <laughs> and these uh, attributes, Wikipedia has a long list of them, numbering in the hundreds, and oh, there is some repetition there, but there's a lot of different ways in which we tend to take the wrong decisions. That can be addressed by better artificial intelligence, working more closely with our native intelligence. And then on the super well-being, it's when we take advantage of the cognitive technologies and others to have people freed from another thing we've inherited from evolution, which is our tendencies to be egocentric, to be alienated, to be depressed, and to seek to dominate people and to deceive each other. So that's some of what transhumanism looks forward to. It's an elevation of humanity, not just that we are maybe 10% better than what we've been in the past, but it's almost like giving birth to a new species. It's almost like the step up from apes to humans in which humans developed a new layer in the brain, the neocortex, more uh, advanced than ever before. Well, now we can have a neo neocortex as it were, with uh, partly from our electronic infrastructure, but partly from reprogramming our biology and from reprogramming our brain. 
and it will, in a much shorter time period, the step up from apes to humans took millions of years. We can look forward just a few decades to a similar extension in capabilities and in experiences. As you were talking about those issues, there are, there are three, I suppose, fears that I could imagine a lot of people would, would point to. And, and the three that struck me particularly were the curing of aging and the perception of the immense challenge that that would represent to society. The second was the creation of artificial emotional intelligence, which I suppose is very often seen as the preservers humans. And ultimately, and I think you just kind of touched on this a little bit, so I'm kind of <laughs> projecting out a little bit more, the merger of, the merger of humans and machines. How does the transhumanist movement and people that understand transhumanism, how do we move the debate forward so that it's explored with a positive mindset rather than in fear? Well, uh, we should be fearful in, in part. I'm not uh, slap happy transhumanists. Um, mm. Part of what I call active transhumanism is recognizing that things could go badly wrong. And things that you have touched on are all causes for concerns. I'm quite aware that when people come across these ideas for the first time, especially when they're presented rather quickly, as I've just done so, there is a future shock, in the words of uh, Alvin Toffler. There is a wow and a yuck, a whole <laughs> bunch of feelings, which uh, can sometimes make it difficult to think clearly. And so that's why we have to spend some time digging into it. And it turns out my most recent book, Vital Foresight, it's has quite a lot of pages in it. And if you add up all the footnotes pages as well, there's more than 600 uh, pages of six inches by nine inches. So I'm gonna try and take the time to walk people through more carefully some of the possibilities and to show them as being, in a sense, a natural extensions of what we have seen in the past. Although of course there are big qualitative issues arising as well. And the questions you have asked are all good ones. And we need to take time to look at them step by step. And uh, I'm quite happy to have the individual discussions. But what I come back to is actually, we do need to bring it all together. Because if we're thinking ahead of the future and we just focus on one or two streams of ideas, we're likely to be misled because the future is going to involve a whole bunch of different revolutions happening at the same time, interacting with each time, complicating each other. So. Sadly, I have to say, we do need to become polymaths, each of us. We do need to become more comfortable with a wide range of disciplines. We do need to think more seriously about economics and about psychology, about ethics, of course, about history, because to have better foresight, it certainly helps to have better hindsight. And of course, then we need to understand the science and the technology as well. And there are multiple sciences involved. There are the biological sciences, there are the material sciences, but there are also the sciences of sociology and psychology. So there's a lot to get our heads around. So I'm quite happy to take much more time to talk people through this. And I want to point out that if we try and just turn our backs on all of this, if we say, well, I'm not gonna think about this, this is uh, too disturbing. I'm gonna put my head in the sand, be an ostrich, that's not, a good idea generally. So we do need to give ourselves enough courage, enough uh, permission 
enough uh, support to look at these quite shocking scenarios and start to separate out the things that, despite being shocking, could actually be very good. Also, the things that perhaps initially were apparently attractive are actually more dangerous and that we need to make the right preparations for them too, to make sure that these outcomes don't happen. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we really started to drill down on here, I think, is the, the underlying technological change. So given that these oncoming waves of technological change have the ability, certainly in the hands of humans, to deliver either global destruction or a, a paradise-like sustainable superabundance, what needs to happen to steer humanity towards sustainable superabundance and away from global destruction. And to some extent, you've started to touch on that where you're talking about a more society-wide debate, a, an open debate about the potential implications of the things that you're talking about. Well, that's right. We do need to bring people from multiple perspectives, from multiple disciplines, from multiple, multiple cultural backgrounds, from multiple philosophical points of view to engage in this discussion. I don't think we're going to get to a humanity plus or a transhumanist or a humanity 2.0, however you want to call it, future, unless we can bring together and take advantage of the very best of humanity 1.0. So that needs to happen. But it's not just a matter of discussion. We need to be able to clarify the true positive future. We need to point this out. What uh, is ahead of us, of course, there are bad, terribly bad uh, possible outcomes as well, but there could be some terribly good outcomes. And when people perceive that, that the future needn't just be a reversion to something we had in the past, you know, let, let's make Britain great again or something like that. Mm -hmm. Actually, the possibilities that lie ahead of us are leagues forward from anything we've had in the past. And let make, let's make have people understand that. Let's spend time painting that out. So this sustainable superabundance, to use that terminology, isn't just something vague. It has a whole bunch of material alongside it. So part of the answer is what I call a transhumanist education, or I also call it the vital syllabus. The stuff that uh, people learn in schools and the stuff that people learn as they're older, sort of often it dates from things that made sense in the past, but we need a whole bunch of new things in our syllabus now. Mm -hmm. And people of all ages, in fact, need to learn about these possibilities as never before. So the educational side is very important. And there's the upholding of the philosophy, but also we do need a stronger politics too, to steer some of these technological possibilities, to steer some of the larger companies, to take control of some of the elements of society that otherwise might become stronger and uh, more corrupted. Power tends to corrupt in the famous words of Lord Acton, as corporations, as people have access to greater technological capability and become more powerful, they will, if, uh, if we don't want to pay attention, they will be corrupted, they will take more to themselves. So we need that strong politics as well. And all of that I try and spell out in vital foresight. So, so one of the things that you spoke about much earlier on was the value of, of foresight. And, and, and also in your book, your book, you talk about the importance of foresight 
in helping governments and enterprise make better, more informed decisions. So, so what are the characteristics of good and bad foresight and the implications of each? Well, sadly, there has been a lot of bad foresight in the world, and it has led people to be quite nervous about the terms futurism. I give some references in my book of uh, very nasty things that people have said about discipline of a, force, a foresight or anybody who calls themselves a futurist, as I know both you and I do. And it comes from the view that this futurism uh, shuts down thinking. It's naive. It's a, instead of enabling new thought, which good foresight does, it leads people into uh, fatalism. It uh, blinkers them. It uh, limits what they can think about. And that has happened in the past. People have been quite convinced they knew what was coming and they painted that picture. And either it was a good picture or it was a bad picture, but it didn't allow people to think more fully as to what could or could not happen. Good foresight isn't about trying to see what will definitely happen. It's about painting credible pictures of what might happen pointing out how different trends could interact in unexpected ways, pointing out how trends could, in some cases, accelerate or in some cases, slow down, changing dynamics and leading to disruptive possibilities. It's not just saying, well, the future's exponential, therefore there is this curve and we're bound to be on it. It's pointing out the ways in which many apparent exponential trends slow down and stop and other ones uh, actually become super exponential and go even faster in some cases than uh, even the most enthusiastic supporters had uh, understood. So good foresight is about, yes, exponentials, but it's also about probabilities. It's about combining different insights from multiple disciplines. It's about helping people to be imaginative, to add things together which have never been added together in their minds or to subtract things out which people previously thought were uh, essential, but which we can now suggest uh, maybe aren't so essential after all, to think these things through with new scenarios. And then, yes, to criticize these scenarios, not just to be uh, excited or fearful of them, but to evaluate them. Well, are they really credible? Are they desirable? How could they be desirable? How could we react to them? And most importantly, how should we change now in the present so that the chances of a more constructive future are increased? That's what good foresight is. And in my book, I look at examples of both. Well, David, it's a, what, what was it quite interesting there was I was just jotting a few things down um, uh, as you were speaking, as things came into my mind. Uh, and it felt to me like uh, good foresight was about openness, was about exploration, was about plausibility. And the very last thing I wrote down just before you said it, it was also about helping us make informed choices. So well, we seem fairly aligned on what, on what good foresight is. David, that's been absolutely marvellous. Thank you so much for your time. Tell us, how can people contact you to learn more about what you do and specifically learn more about your book? So my book is currently, as we're speaking now, in the final stages of a free open preview. Details are on my blog, dw2blog.com. That's two is a digit, dw2blog.com. There are details of my book and in due course, the open preview will shut down, but there will also be links instead to where people can obtain at first an electronic copy and in due course, a physical copy and ideally also an audible copy of the book. 
but it's not just about a book it's about a conversation and the kind of work you do steve i'm very much aligned with that it's uh, to communicate in multiple ways to transform the public discussion about the possibilities for the future so that we're not just uh, preoccupied by today's issues and risks serious though they are but we are aware that in the not too distant future within five to ten years there could be a bunch of new issues and risks which are even larger than the ones which rightly occupy our minds today so we have to get ahead of some of that and that's the point of the discussions which you and i are both part of well david once again thank you so much for your time and thank you everyone for listening do let your friends and colleagues know about the informing choices mini pod and i'll see you on a future episode very soon.